0: Well, I'm very proud of my life, my work life. And I tried really hard wherever I worked.
1: Have an open mind and it's amazing what truths you gain. Take a pause and just relax, unwind, make life simple again.
0: Welcome to Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench. I'm Aaron Davis, and along with my co-host Doug Robinson, who resides at the village at Sandalwood Park in Brampton, we are super excited to spend time with our guest today, and you will soon hear why. Before we even met our esteemed guest, we had learned and witnessed the mantra of the people he surrounds himself with, teamwork, makes the dream work and what a perfect way to continue our theme of connection family and service what schlegel villages retirement and long-term care residences are all about the right honorable david johnston is a man who truly lives up to his honorific as i think you'll hear As Governor General of Canada from 2010 to 2017, Mr. Johnston was memorable for all of the best reasons as Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's representative in Canada. And guess what? He's long been associated with Schlegel Villages, and so we've made sure the green bench is extra shiny and ready for him to join us here today. Well, you know, Doug, what is so special among so many things about our guest today, the Right Honorable David Johnston, is he's like the former news presenters of CBC and BBC in that he has dressed for this. He has a tie on. So in honor of David Johnston, what we're going to do is I am in a ball gown and, Doug, you're in your tuxedo. Isn't that correct? Yep. Good. All right.
2: We should have the video cameras on for that.
0: Oh, we will. We will. What a delight it is to have you with us. And we want to start off by offering you the utmost respect, calling you the Right Honorable David Johnston. And how would you like to be addressed, sir?
2: Well, call me David, uh, Aaron, and as I said, any time you use the title, it's a $10 fine and it doubles with each subsequent offense and all the fines go to the Rita Hall Foundation. So go ahead and commit those wrongs and the monies will tally
1: up. Okay.
2: But otherwise, it's David.
1: I've got to start out and still say, good afternoon, Your Honor. Uh, That's $10, Doug, and counting. And I'll pay the
2: $10. (laughs) May it continue.
0: All right. I'm David. It's lovely, lovely to have you here. And you are such an important part of the Schlegel family, but we want to go back a little bit before we get to the present and, of course, to the future with the Rideau Hall Foundation, sir. 2010 to 2017, you were the most wonderful Governor General of Canada. Do you ever have a moment, especially in this year of Her Majesty's Jubilee, that you go... Oh, gee, it'd be nice to be wearing those medals again and to be in that position once more.
2: We loved the seven years we were there. And it's a, really a two-person job. Sharon was so much a part of it. And uh, it was just a joy to uh, see the country through a different lens. And, of course, uh, having the chance to come to know Queen Elizabeth was just remarkable. Uh, Seventy years on the throne, we celebrate uh this year, um, and she epitomizes the leader as servant, um, has just been a, a remarkable part of uh, what makes Canada such a special place. The longest serving uh, monarch in uh, British constitutional history, and that's a thousand years of constitutional history. You know, we're so blessed wow. in this country with a rather unique form of government that's evolved over a thousand years.
0: Mm-hmm. And, of course, you're speaking to a former British citizen here with Doug Robinson, who no doubt has some perspective to share on this.
1: I had the pleasure of serving her mother, the Queen Mother. She was special. Oh, she was special, really. Yes. I have a wonderful photograph with her.
2: Isn't that grand? I tell stories about the the personal qualities of the royal family that we really don't know, but one is a story I tell of... uh, was actually on Stuart McLean's Vinyl Café on oh. one occasion. It was a couple living in Montreal. It would be in the 70s when things were getting a little difficult in, uh, in Quebec and, and sentiment for the monarchy was not at its height. Mm-hmm. And they lived in an apartment building on Sherbrooke Street and they were working very hard to learn French. And the um, manager of the apartment building with his office in the front door was a man by the name of Monsieur Tremblay very nice man he would chat with them each day and correct their french uh, and so on one day he invited them in for tea and uh, they came in and lo and behold uh, there on his wall was a large picture of queen elizabeth and they said mr Trombley, uh, said remarkable vous avez a photo de le, le, sa, sa majesty it's remarkable that uh, the queen is there mm-hmm. and he said i love the queen and he said well that's wonderful to hear we have enormous respect as well, can you tell me why? He says, "Well, I was a sergeant in the Van the Twenty Second oh. Canadian Regiment during um, World War Two, and we were stationed in the southwest of uh, England, and uh, we were on a, a training mission, and we came across a, a British uh, military personnel truck on the side of the road with a hood up. When we stopped, and lo and behold, it's actually a, a hospital uh, truck, and uh, there were two young women in uniform uh, trying to see something under the hood. We stopped, and." We said, can we help them? And uh, they said, well, yes. And he said, I looked. I said, well, this is something we can fix quite easily. It's a fan belt and we will we'll replace that for you. Why don't you ladies go and just have a cup of tea over here and we'll put a blanket out for you and we'll have this done in about 15 minutes. And this young lady, 21 or 22, said, no, sir, you are my superior. I will stand here so that I can assist if you need me. So he <laughs> finished the the job and, and uh, told the ladies he was finished. And, and then he... he recognized something remarkable about this, this young woman of 22. And as they drove off, you realized it was Princess Elizabeth.
0: Goodness. Goodness. No. Wow. Service yeah. long before she had to, but into which she was born. Indeed. And, of course, you've known a life of service as well, David. And one of the stories that you tell in your book, The Idea of Canada, and I love this question because... I think it just sort of sums up a great place to even continue with this chat today. Who are you anyway? Tell us the story behind that question and the answer that you give, would you please?
2: Well, that's quite a story. Who am I? Um, Sharon and I have made a lot of visits across the country and particularly the north, uh, which is a just a place for which I have enormous admiration and interest. And we are in... Um, it was uh, Repulse Bay, which is just above the Arctic Circle, late in August. And when we arrived there early in the morning, we realized they were having a Terry Fox run that day. Uh, and Sharon and I, with our children, now our grandchildren, run in every Terry Fox run each year. So there was one, and we had our running gear with us. So we got dressed up in, uh, in track suits. And there we were at the start. And as I was about to sound off the, the pistol, uh, a little guy about eight eight an Inuit lad came up to me and says, uh, "Who are you anyway?" And I said, <laughs> "I'm the Governor General of Canada. What's your name anyway?" I said, "My name is David." Well David how old are you anyway I said I'm 64 years old he says 64 he says I didn't think anybody could get that old so <laughs> Sharon and I did the race we came back and finished it and I found the little guy and I I put my arm around his shoulder and I said not dead yet anyway uh... <laughs> so I I say that as uh that's a who am i because it it permits you to kind of see yourself through the eyes of others And one of the good things about that is you never have to worry about changing your hatband size. It it keeps your head steady and keeps you focused on being conscious of something other than yourself.
0: That's wonderful. What a great way for each of us to look through that prism, as you say, and keep the hatband the same size. Well, let's tell everybody a little bit about who you are, born in Sudbury, so of course you played hockey. Come on. Yes. You even played with the Esposito brothers at one yeah, time, did well, you not? Yeah,
2: in, well, in northern Ontario, uh Aaron, you learn to, to skate before you walk.
0: Right, <laughs> right, it's true. Grew up in Sault Ste. Marie.
2: Yeah, I was born in Sudbury, Coppercliff, and then moved to Sault Ste. Marie when I was uh, six. And, of course, the Sioux-like Sudbury is a wonderful sporting town. Um I played on a team called Algoma Contractors, and it was largely Italian-Canadians. Um, there were three of us who formed one forward line, Frayne, Ryan, and Johnston. They called it the spaghetti line. But Phil and Tony Esposito were members of that 17 and other team. We won a provincial championship. Oh. And Tony was 14 years old. And people say to me, come on. And Tony was a backup goaltender. They say, Tony Esposito, backup goaltender. yeah. He was age 14 on a 17-another team. Wow. So they were, were great oh. stars. And Lou Nanny played on that team as well, went on Minnesota. And we had... Chico and Wayne Mackey just before and after, and Gino Ubiaco and some some great players out of that wonderful community of Sault
1: Ste. Marie. Wow. Talking of hockey, David, are you a Leaf supporter or a Senator
0: supporter? <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want the
2: truth. <laughs> I was in the Canadian Tire Centre one time with a friend who had season's tickets and I went to see a game when I was GG and... As we got there, he pulled out a duffel bag and he had seven Ottawa Senators sweaters for all of his family members, and he was about to put one on me. I said... uh I can't do that. This is a national broadcast. I've got to love all the teams. Uh,
0: <laughs> so when
2: I'm asked, which is your favorite team for the Stanley Cup? I say, any Canadian team that's in the finals. Well, what, what happens if it's Toronto and Montreal? I said, I'll be glad to cross that bridge when I come to it.
0: Amen. <laughs> amen. Well, there is one love that goes back even farther than our memories of when the Leafs last won the Stanley Cup, which was 1967. And uh, you you have been married now since 1967. 19- Sixty-four. You have referred to Sharon and your life partner on this wonderful ride together. So I know that Doug has lots of questions about marriage and happiness and all of that. So Doug, I'm going to let you lead the way here.
1: Thank you, Aaron. David, uh, in two years' time, you're going to be sixty years married. Do you have anything special planned?
2: Well, first of all, I would say, yes, we were married in nineteen sixty four but for Sharon it's it's much worse than that, Doug. I was her first date in high school when she was thirteen, oh. so uh that poor woman yeah. has had to put up with me for even longer than the years since nineteen sixty four What we'll do oh. on the sixtieth, I think is we'll gather the five daughters and the fourteen grandchildren and we'll have uh a, a wonderful party that celebrates um three generations um and that'll be that'll be our family all together and just uh Having a grand time,
1: yeah. I I celebrated my sixtieth last year. Wow, about I, that. I've I've known my wife for eighty years. My gosh, we we grew up in the same street during the war. What's what street was that, and where, Doug? In uh, Gilby Road, in Tooting, South London. Sure, sure. Well, isn't that grand? Yeah. It's a wonderful
2: story, yeah. isn't it? Well, yeah, I grew up about is. five blocks away from Sharon. She lived on Summit Avenue which of course was above the hill. And I live on Woodward Avenue, which was below the hill and below the tracks. So that kind of oh. separated our, our station in life, but somehow she managed to uh, overcome that and uh, was prepared to, to, to date me through high school and university and we were married in 1964 and then spent our first year of marriage in Cambridge, England, which was uh, absolutely wonderful.
0: When you were dating and courting, was there ever any chance that you might have become a professional hockey player? I mean, obviously the road not taken, but was that ever something that Sharon might have been, you know, she might have been a hockey wife at one time?
2: Yeah, we cer- certainly, you know, a young lad growing up in Sault Ste. Marie, um, athletics are a big part of your life. And um, it, it was an aspiration. Um but uh, I, my mother <laughs> discouraged me from playing junior A hockey. We had a scout in our home when I was, I think, age fourteen, and when she learned that uh, the boys generally didn't go to high school uh, while playing and and mm. um, had no aspirations for university, that kind of put a stop to that. But I, I went to college in the United States then, and I was um, I was invited to the Boston Bruins trial camp in 1963. Um, six teams in the NHL at that point. and And um, right. our coach at that time had been the coach of the Bruins, knew them well. And after a lot of consideration, um, I had a scholarship to go and study law in Cambridge and mm-hmm. decided to do that because it was unlikely I would have made the Bruins in my first year and I would have been at um, at their farm club, which was the Providence Reds in Rhode Island, going to law school at night and trying to play hockey. And I had... Um, I'd. Um, contracted mononucleosis in my the last um part of my senior year or so i was had been in hospital for 10 days at that point of time and i guess i concluded that the fickle hand of fate had said go and learn how to be a lawyer and not to be a professional hockey player
0: and here you are holding honorary doctorates from more than 25 universities and learning institutions, as well, of course, as your law degrees from Cambridge and Queen's University, invested as an officer of the Order of Canada and promoted to companion the order's highest level in 1997. I think your mom would have been pretty proud of that decision that you made, as as we all are.
2: It's very risky for that promotion, you know, Aaron. Uh, there are 65 <laughs> living members of the uh, of the order who um, occupy the companion status. And I, I uh-huh. joke with people who uh, uh, who become companions. And while I was Gigi, we would uh, actually preside over the ceremony. I said, you, re- you got to realize now there's a bounty on your head because uh, one of us has to disappear for someone to come into the ranks.
0: <laughs> oh, OK. Well, that's good to know. Well, you're safe here with us. You're safe here with us. <laughs> Thank
2: <laughs> heavens. I'll breathe easily. Ah,
0: good, <laughs> good. <laughs> You talk about the family connections and what you're going to be doing for your 60th anniversary. And nothing could be more important than gathering your daughters and your grandchildren. So let's talk about the importance of family connections. Something that you've sat on our green bench, which is so safe, so welcoming, to discuss with Ron Schlegel, of course, who is behind this whole idea of sharing the wisdom of seniors. Let's talk about family connections, especially in the 21st century. Could we please, David?
2: Well, I just can't emphasize enough the importance of family. For me, the, the two rocks in my life have been my family and my, my spiritual faith, my religion. Uh, I come home each evening from from work. I was a general manager of universities for 27 years, uh, three five-year terms at McGill and two six-year terms at Waterloo before we went to Ottawa. And uh, I must say, if you know the day was a little difficult, you come home and join your family and say, all is well. And this is, uh, is marriage where it begins, but for us, having children was simply a profound experience. And now we live it again through the 14 grandchildren and uh, see life through their eyes. I say all the important things in life I've learned from my children and now my grandchildren. And so the family is, is first of all, just a foundation of love, um, uncompromised, unconditional love. And it's a constant learning experience. Marriage is a constant learning experience. And so uh, I celebrate the families. In fact, in my installation address as Governor General, entitled A Smart and Caring Nation, A Call to Service, Um, families and children were the first of our three priorities. And uh, Sharon, in particular, uh, pursued that pillar of um, our mandate for seven years, especially with respect to mental health, where she has a great interest. She has a doctorate in rehabilitation medicine from from McGill. And um, for her, uh, the importance of families uh, with respect to mental health uh, simply couldn't be un- reinforced enough. And one, of, of bringing mental health out of the, the closet, out of the shadows, and putting it in the same light of day as physical health. And then secondly, the hope that um, we've learned so much about the human mind in the last 20 years that um, we can do remarkable things with uh, mental illnesses that we couldn't even think of the years before. But that's all part of family. And, of course, family is your refuge in times of uh, trouble, in times of challenge, and um, something that we in Canada, I think, should celebrate and to reinforce. I think of George Vanier, one of our most beloved governor general, who, when he left the office, established the Vanier Institute uh, for the family. Uh, That, for him and his wife, were uh, such cardinal principles. that Again, plus their faith, they were... Uh, devoted uh, Christians and, in fact, uh, has a small chapel in, in um, Rideau Hall uh, in the home of the Governor General and they would be um, praying in that chapel each day It's just part of their daily routine. Hmm.
1: Talking of uh, grandchildren, uh, David, how come you became Grandpa Book uh, <laughs> and Mrs. Johnson, Granny Shine?
2: <laughs> Good for you, Doug. Well, Granny Sunshine, as she's called, is that because she's typically up about 6.30 in the morning, often before the sun rises. Uh, she takes her dog out and uh, she has a quick little breakfast and then she sits down to write. She writes historical fiction novels. She's just in the middle of the third of a trilogy. Um, and um, then around about 11.30, she goes to ride her horse. Uh, and she comes home about uh, one o'clock and has lunch and says, "Let the day begin." So she's Granny Sunrise to the to the grandchildren. <laughs> when they stay with us, they get up with her, and uh, she doesn't do too much writing at that time. But they go with her when she rides the horse. Mm. Uh, I'm Grandpa Book because uh, I've always read books to our children. I think the Narnery stories I've read all the way through five times to them, and then when the grandchildren came along, I began that process as well of reading to them when we'd visit them and buying them books and so um, they call me Grandpa Book even the little guy who's now six when he was about a year and a quarter he could say Grandpa Book Grandpa Book <laughs> I knew who he was speaking to <laughs>
0: uh, yes yes he was naming you and making a request at the same time
2: That's it time for a yeah. story yep. Grandpa Book <laughs> uh,
1: My, my uh, eldest grandson he couldn't get uh, understand the uh why he had two granddads? Oh. He, he couldn't. He, he had two granddads, and he he couldn't make sense of that, So I became Papa Doug, and the other granddad was Papa Ray. Oh, that's so good. We Papa Doug and Papa Ray. That's good.
2: The <laughs> little guy that says he said Grandpa Book, his um, grandfather on uh, on his father's side uh, is an engineer, and and he's magical. He can do anything. So he's called Grandpa Fix-It because they know that whenever anything goes wrong in their home, and Grandpa, Grandpa Fix-It comes oh,
1: I love from it. from doorknobs to the,
2: the electrical circuits have all broken down. He'll, he'll fix it make it make it good. You know, mentioning grandchildren and children, I say all the important things in life I've learned from children. I, I really mean that it's, I think, important to see the future through the eyes of the next generation. It gives you perspective in the the book, after the, the Idea of Canada book that you referred to, Aaron, we did two books on innovation and then we did a book called Trust, uh, about the importance of trust in our relationships and trust in our government and trust in our communities. And the inscription at the beginning is, to children who offer their trust implicitly in the full expectation of fairness. Just think of that. To children who offer their trust implicitly with the full expectation of fairness. And, you know, that courage of the innocent to to offer their trust is important. But it's also important that, you know, we respond to that by saying we must be fair, kind and fair, being kind of the fundamental values of being a Canadian.
0: I think that that dedication also fits as I'm sitting here considering it, David, to religion. We offer our trust in God in an expectation or a hope of fairness, and also to government. So, what can we do in this age of so much mistrust and so much misinformation? How do we get through this time that we're in right now, in your experience? And you have so much of it.
2: Well, I think we reinforce our leaders who, in fact, engender trust and seek our trust by speaking the truth to us. My Tea Party here in Canada is the three Ts of um, of truth, transparency and trust. I mean, that's what we expect of our leaders and I think we exercise our votes in the same way that we should expect and vote for people who engender trust and build trust based on integrity, based on transparency and openness and and based on service, like the queen, the leader is servant. So it seems to me that that's the basis of a functioning democracy. And if you look at this pandemic, you know, which has tested us so much, mm-hmm. Arne and Doug, and has um, really created such havoc and, and chaos and, and death in our lives and fear, etc. The nations that have done best have been the ones that are most trustworthy. Uh, Fareed Zakaria on CNN was looking at um, deaths per capita, that terrible statistic of, of yes. our systems just not working to protect us, and, and vaccination rates. And um, he had the United States on the screen. Um, its per capita death rate um, is about... three and a half times that of Canada's. And uh, then even better than Canada is Denmark um, in terms of death per capita. Um, US about three and a half times more than us and about four and a half times more than Denmark. And and the other index he drew was the the, uh, survey of trust in government. Um, And um, in the case of the United States, uh, it was down around the kind of 30 35th percentile, and Canada was up towards the 60th percentile, and in the case of Denmark it was up in the 75th percentile. So there's a direct relationship between the trust we have in one another, the trust we have in our communities, in our regions, in our regional and provincial governments, and in our national governments, and how we respond to something like this pandemic that has such devastating consequences, especially for older people. Uh, where there is trust um, Uh, there's a tendency to be able to face up to the problems and deal with them. Um, George Shultz, who was the quite remarkable um, statesperson in the United States, Secretary of the Treasurer, Secretary of State, Secretary of Labor, and Chief of Staff to both Republican and Democratic institutions, just imagine that in today's Mm -hmm. world, Uh, once said, trust is the coin of the realm. Where you have trust whether it's the operational room, the family room, the military room, the training room, everything goes well. And when you don't, it doesn't. Everything else is detailed. And, and trust is such a foundation of a functioning uh, society and a functioning democracy. Heavens, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning if we didn't have some trust that uh, things would be working reasonably well.
0: It's so true. It is so true. And in these times when we have lost our connection with each other, we need to get that back as well as the trust. And you and Ron Schlegel, who have been close for many years, you have talked about the beauty of human connectivity. Can we look at that a little bit? I mean, we're experiencing it right now, aren't we, Doug, being able to talk with the yeah. right Honorable David Johnston. Please don't fine me for saying your title.
2: That's $20, $20 um, now, Erin. The amount is oh, going up.
0: Got me. And we're going to talk about where this money's going to in a moment oh, as well. It goes to the Rita <laughs> yes. Hall
2: Foundation. It'll it'll produce another trust book. The book we're working on now is called Empathy, which is what Ron and I often talk about. Sympathy is I feel sorry for your situation. Empathy is I see your situation and I walk with you side by side and we do something Aww. about it. And uh, that's what Ron engenders. And that's that's the Schlegel culture. I, I regard myself as a member of the Schlegel family adopted, uh, going back to when we arrived in Waterloo in 1999, and of course they come from a Mennonite background. Uh, we lived in a farm about a uh, 12-minute drive from the university in Mennonite country, 100-acre farm, and our, all our neighbors were horse and buggy people, Mennonites, and they were absolutely wonderful. Um, and that notion of kindness, of uh, looking to the needs of the other person was so key. i tell a story about that if I could just go into it. Uh, Edgar Schantz was the Mennonite neighbor who leased our farmland of 100 acres, and became a close friend and kind of guide to us as innocent people on a farm and not knowing which end of the tractor to start with. And And Sharon was running a 36 horse stable uh, with training and so on that she inherited with the farm. And um, uh, the insurance rates were fairly high. And so the insurance broker said, look, reappraise uh, all of your buildings. You don't want to under-insure them, but you don't want to over-insure them, and just be sure they're accurate. So she was out with a clipboard one day, looking at the buildings, and Edgar came along, doing something in the field with his tractor, and he said, "Sharon, can I help you?" You're looking here in the barn. She says, "Well, what what's this barn cost, Edgar?" He says, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, what would it cost us to replace it?" He said, "Well, why would you want to replace it?" Well, Edgar, if there was a fire, we'd have to replace it, and then we'd cost a lot of money, and so I got to insure it for the right value," he said, Sharon. If your there was a fire in your farm burned down, we'd replace it. We we'd come to help to put out the fire. It's volunteer fire grid right here. Uh, once it's out, we'd wait till it cooled down. Come that weekend, and we'd clear out all the debris. And the next weekend, then if it needed another weekend, we'd come and we'd rebuild it. We we supply all the timber. We have um, uh, forests, uh, woodlands around our our farms, and we have a sawmill. Um, and uh, you know we'd have the hinges and so on. Oh, but he says the the roof—that's a tin roof—that would probably be burned up in the fire. So we'd have to buy the tin for that. So put a thousand dollars value on it, and that's how we'd rebuild your farm. That's the the notion of barn raising, which is uh, really a kind of signature of the Mennonite people. But it was the signature that I used uh, for the whole of Waterloo—that's a community of barn raisers—and that's simply being conscious of your neighbor and people who aren't your neighbors, who are strangers but need your help and you provide that help.
0: That is so often the case that people don't care about something until it happens to them. Right. And we see that over and over again, but it is truly that empathy and the compassion and the ability to walk in someone else's moccasins, if you will. Yeah,
2: it is. You know, another story I tell from my friend Edgar, from whom I learned so much because, you know, I was president of the University of Waterloo and I'd wander around the the country speaking about Canada's technology triangle and the, the great advances that were coming from that, that community, and then I realized that I come home each evening to people who make very careful choices about what technology is useful and what they don't need. Our Mennonite neighbors, they didn't need cars and trucks. Um, they uh, they used tractors on their land, but uh, they didn't they didn't need television in their homes. Uh, they could live without it. And one day I was on the tractor with Edgar and he had a short-sleeved shirt on and he had a bandage just over the area of his uh, elbow, the inside of his elbow. And I said, Edgar, that's a strange place for a bandage. That's normally where you have a, a needle or something or, or you give blood. And, and he says, yeah, I give blood. I said, what, you give blood? And i thinking of the Mennonites being very astir in their own communities and so on. And he says, yeah, he says, I, I do. Our son at, at three had a very serious operation at Six Children's Hospital, needed a lot of blood, and I've been a regular blood donor all my life. I said, how many pints have you given, Edgar? He said, 207. Uh, I said, Edgar, you're 55, 58 years old. That you, you only can give blood once every three or four months that you could never do. Oh, no, he says, every 57 days. So every 57th day, he would hitch up his horse and buggy, and he'd drive it 12 kilometers to Elmira, the nearest village and he'd give blood and come home unless it was a Sunday, in which case he'd go on the 50th day. And uh, one day he went to give blood and they tested him. they said, uh, Mr. Shonson, I'm sorry we can't take your blood, you're anemic. See your doctor. Well, he didn't know what anemic meant and Mennonites don't go to see doctors regularly, only extremists and Came back 57 days later, and again, they took a test. Mr. Sean I'm sorry, you're anemic. We can't take your block. So he we thought, well, if I'm going to give blood, I better get this anema or whatever it is, uh, rid of. Mm-hmm. And I went to the doctor, and fortunately, they discovered that there was uh, symptoms of cancer, and he had about uh, about a foot of his colon removed, and they caught it early, and he was, he was just fine. And so it's a wonderful story of someone, you know, doing something for someone else. Blood goes to anyone, and... Um, here it, it has saved his life. And when I was um, went off to college in Boston, I had begun the habit of giving blood as a 17-year-old in, in Sault Ste. Marie and wanted to continue it. And I looked on the campus for the blood donation clinic and there wasn't one. I looked in the phone book and found it and got on the subway, got off at the station and it was the crummiest neighborhood you could imagine. But there was a Red Cross and a rather unusual warehouse-like building and I went over and inside, here were about 10 homeless men there, you know, very decrepit, etc. And all of a sudden, I realized that in the United States, you're paid for giving blood. And these poor homeless fellows, this is, you know, what they would do. Yeah, You're paid to give blood and you're charged, of course, when you receive blood. And I thought, you know, it's one of the singular features of Canada that we don't charge people to receive a donation of blood when they're sick. And we don't pay people to give it. And uh, it's really important, I think, that, you know, Canada sees that in other manifestations of looking after the other whom we don't know. When we contribute a pint of blood, we don't know where it will go, but we know it will save someone's life.
0: That's a beautiful, beautiful it story metaphor. It is, isn't it? Metaphor, yeah. it. Great, yeah, great story
2: of Canada.
1: Beautiful. David. What was it like growing up in a house with six young ladies? <laughs> and did you play board games?
2: <laughs> did we play board games? We sure did. And, and I, would, I would claim that my wife would always cheat, and that's why she would win. And, and, and with the children, they'd, they'd always win because they were just so smart. But what I would say about the six women, Doug, is that I'm the most improved man in the world. Yeah. And the reason for that is six women would get up every morning and say, how do we improve dad today? And they would say, unfortunately, he slips back every night. But the good thing is that this would go on for the teenage years where each of the daughters would feel their mission in life was to improve their father. A little bit with their mother, but she, she didn't need very much improving. But around about age 19 or so, you'd be up going up in a ski lift with your daughter. You'd be driving or someone. She'd say to her, Dad, I've got something to say to you. And he said, yes, dear, what is it? You've changed a lot, you know. Oh, have I, dear? Yeah, he says, you're actually interesting to talk to now. You didn't used to be. (laughs) And each time I've said, isn't it wonderful that an old man like me can change so much? So I've changed dramatically five times. And it's all to the credit of the daughters.
0: Oh, beautiful, Love, beautiful. Oh, Lovely
1: story, David.
0: Now, we know you have to go. So before we let you go, sir, we need to find out where our fines and donations are going. Oh, of my, yes. Indeed. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're
2: We're accumulating that word, sir, costs at least $5. How? There, are, So oh. keep on.
0: Well, oh, I've got lots of words that'll cost money, but they're not. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. All
2: right. We arrived okay. in Rideau Hall in 2010, and uh, yes. fairly quickly, uh, I think we became patrons of over 150 organizations across the country. And I thought, you know, I mean, that's nice. You want to be patron to help charitable organizations, but it's just a name on the letterhead. We want to do more than that. And the office of the governor is very traditional. And so we've created a philanthropy and volunteer committee uh, to provide advice and went across the country and met with groups of people in the order of Canada, whose motto is they desire a better country. And these are people who've worked really hard to do that. And sought their advice. And out of that came is you really, if you want to engage more with the different charities and initiatives across the country that are helping to make this a smarter and more caring country where everyone has a sense of belonging, uh, you, you have to do something more entrepreneurial and simply sit there and uh, convoke ceremonies and send letters and so on. So we created the Rita Hall Foundation um to amplify the outreach of the Office of the Governor General to network and collaborate with other organizations to build a smarter, more caring country. So we're celebrating our 10th anniversary now, and um, it's just been wonderfully successful. I could go on at length about the the programs. The one we're working on now that really excites me is a a, a partnership with MasterCard Foundation, which is a very substantial foundation to fund 10,000 indigenous young people to become teachers over the next decade with Identifying them early in the later grades of primary school, following them through through high school, providing financial help if necessary, and opportunities to to be mentored and to see teaching situations, camp counseling and summers and so on, and then uh, with a b ed degree uh, in a, a university uh, to become a teacher and we expect that with that particular initiative, ten thousand new young indigenous people as t- teachers and, and proud of the profession proud of their culture, et cetera, uh, we can eliminate the education gap between indigenous and non-indigenous young people. That's just one of the programs that uh, we have. We created the Governor General's Innovation Awards uh, to recognize and celebrate innovation across the country. Uh, We now have a a prize for high school students uh, with innovations being technological or business or social innovations, uh, working with the Junior Chamber of Commerce chapters across the country, Uh, We um, manage the Queen Elizabeth Scholar Program, which sends Canadians abroad and brings international students here. That's now almost $100 million invested in over 3,000 students on a bit of a hiatus now with the COVID, but that'll uh, pick up again. Um, I could go on and on about uh, the different um, things that we do. One, to come back to your question about fake news and distrust in media, Aaron is... um, Mm -hmm. When Roland Michener was governor general, uh, when he left office, he created the Michener Awards for integrity in journalism, and uh, it was named after his daughter, Wendy, who uh, died the, I think, of cancer at a young age, and it was to memorialize her. But it it, it had become uh, not very noticeable. So we, uh, Rito Hall Foundation now operates the Michener Awards to um, celebrate um six finalists uh, in print or television media each year for public integrity in journalism, and then um one is selected. And, and the program they're working on now is to take those winning organizations and make them available to the schools of journalism across the country and universities and colleges to present face-to-face to young people that are interested in being writers, communicators, journalists, uh, what integrity in journalism is about and what trust and truth in journalism is all about. So just one of the, the many things that we do with the Rideau Hall Foundation, always through networking with other organizations and providing kind of support and reinforcement to, um, for them to do great works in their communities. I should just mention one other because it's it's kind of forgotten. The uh, Office of the Governor General is responsible for the honor system in Canada through the, we call it the Chancery, where these awards are done. There are about 70 different honors that Canada has, best known one being the Order of Canada, but Romeo LeBlanc, um, who was a wonderful governor general, um, created the Caring Canadian Award. He came from an Acadian village, and he was very conscious of how important volunteers were to a community. And um I think during his time, there were 40 or 50 Canadians who were recognized as outstanding volunteers. And these are unsung heroes, people who aren't in the front pages of the newspaper. But just year after year, they run the Meals on Wheels program, or they food banks or Red Cross, you coaching a baseball team or figure skating team, you name it. And it it fell um, into dissuade to it. It uh, just uh, largely disappeared because of budget cuts uh, in the office before we arrived. So one of the first things we did with the Rideau Hall Foundation was to raise $5 million so that the yield from that would ensure that we could offer at least 1,000 caring Canadian awards each year. And when we informed Queen Elizabeth about it, We proposed to her that they be called the Queen Elizabeth Medal for Volunteerism, and she said, I'm just delighted, but let's call it the Sovereign's Medal of Volunteerism so it will continue on a sustainable basis. And I I can't tell you how touched I would be, Sharon and I would be at these ceremonies uh, where we'd be presenting the Sovereign's Medal in Volunteerism to these volunteers, and they would say, well, you know, why me? There's so many other people who have done such important things, they should be recognized too and i often say that if you want to judge the health of a particular community city or a town look at the volunteers per capita if that number is well above average that's a healthy community if they're not it isn't
0: oh we couldn't we couldn't end on a more caring note and we thank you so much for your time and your passion and your compassion and for being a part of the Schlegel community, adopted, as you say. And we wish you and Sharon just many more happy years of marriage and parenthood and grandparenthood and all the love and gratitude to you both for what you've given to Canada and what you've given to us today. We are in your debt. Thank you. Thank you, David.
2: Take care. Keep well, both of you. We sure
0: will. Well, we are certainly richer for having sat down with the former Governor General today. Although, maybe lighter a loony or two, thanks to a very good cause. From as close as it gets to Canadian royalty, to the neighbor in the room next door, and the caring staff members who are there for them, you just never know who you're going to meet on the green bench. So be sure and subscribe and you won't miss an episode. They come out every two weeks. Just go to elderwisdom.ca to find the link. And while you're there, sign the Elder Wisdom Pledge, too, won't you? Doug and I are so looking forward to our next chat here. A former Catholic priest who left to get married and has now found his way serving a congregation in the United Church. It's an honest and emotional discussion about life, even its ending, that will have you thinking about our chat with Jack long after the closing theme has played here. I promise. On behalf of Doug Robinson, I'm Erin Davis. We thank you for sharing in these life stories and we'll talk to you again soon because your seat on the Green Bench is ready and waiting.
2: Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench, is brought to you by Schlegel Villages, a complete continuum of care, offering independent living to long-term care, celebrating and honoring the wisdom of the elder. To learn more about us, please go to our website, schlegelvillages.com.